Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about some people who just wanted to get home. I was escorted outside, literally at gunpoint. Michael Beninov is a journalist and photographer who studies nomadic people around the world. Well, the Vankujars are a tribe of forest-dwelling nomads migrating between their winter territory and their summer territory has always really been a key part of their way of life. The Vamujar live in northern India. Their lives revolve around the water buffalo they herd, and they're vegetarians, so they never eat the buffalo. In the fall and winter, the Vangujar live in the lowlands. And it's covered by this very thick, jungly forest where there is plenty of food for these water buffaloes to eat. Just out in the wild, there's plenty of water for them to drink. But then what happens is around middle of March, beginning of April, it starts to get so hot there that the forest essentially starts to bake in the heat. All the leaves die and fall off the trees. The grasses shrivel up and disappear. All the water sources just vanish. So if they were to stay there, the buffaloes wouldn't have anything to eat or drink. So as a matter of survival, they need to leave this lowland jungle range, and then they head up into the Himalayas. While these forests down below are kind of baking in the heat, what's happening up high is that the snow is beginning to melt and it reveals these great grassy meadows where there's plenty of food and there are streams that are offering plenty of water for the buffaloes. Michael wanted to join the Vangujar on their annual migration. So, through a translator, he asked a Vangujar family if he could come with them. For reasons we'll get to later, they really, really wanted a journalist along, especially this year. So they enthusiastically said yes. Those first days on the trail with this family were unbelievably hot. And really our route was determined by the couple of places where water still existed. Because we had to camp nearby them with all the animals that we had. The daytime temperatures were, I think, somewhere in like the hundred and teens and really just sort of the initial impact of uh, traveling with them was like, wow, it, this is just environmentally very intense. My role in this extended family group was getting sorted out. My goal was to be as little of a burden to this family as possible, and if anything, to be more helpful rather than less. So I would try to pitch in and do, you know, whatever kind of work that would seem to be helpful for the family. They, it took a little while to sort out what they were comfortable with me doing, not so much because they were concerned about my physical well-being, but because for them, guests aren't supposed to be doing work. milking time and you know some of them were just you know hanging around squeezing milk into their own mouths directly from the udder and they kind of offered it to me 
you know, sort of joking around, like not really expecting that I would ever take them up on this. And of course, I felt like I had to because it's sort of part of integrating into this family and it didn't seem like there would be anything wrong with it anyways. You know, I knelt down and one of them squeezed the udder and shot the milk directly into my mouth. And they all just thought it was hilarious. What does water buffalo milk taste like? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's it's much better than regular cow milk. You know, in India, it's almost like the opposite value system in terms of the way they think about milk. I mean, here, you know, people are into skim milk and 2% milk. And there, the more milk fat that there is, the better the milk. Uh, and buffalo milk is really rich and delicious. And it tastes sort of similar to cow milk, but it's just richer and more fulfilling. And without a doubt, the best chai you'll ever have is made with buffalo milk, not with cow milk. The walk continued through the hot lowlands. Michael kept trying to find ways to be useful to his Van Gujar family. And finally, one day, for reasons he never expected, he succeeded. One time we were camped. It was maybe somewhere between half a mile and a mile outside of the center of this village. And in order to get water, they meant we had to walk back into the village, fill up these basically like five-gallon water jugs, and then carry them back half a mile or a mile to where we happen to be camping. I mean, that's a heavy amount of water to be carrying back over that distance. And I happened to notice that directly across the road from where we were camped, there was this building that was under construction. And it turned out somebody was um, building like a hotel restaurant or something right there. And there happened to be a hose with running water as part of that construction site that was really, uh, you know, 30 seconds walk away from our camp. And so I suggested that we go over there and see about using the water from that hose instead of walking all the way back to the village. The family, particularly um, Jamila, the mother, who was kind of in charge of the water operation, you know, she was very hesitant to do so and really thought that there was no way we would ever be allowed to use that hose. And I said, well, let me just go over and check it out. So I walked over and I talked to the guy who owned the property, explained our situation. And he was perfectly happy to let us come over and take the water, didn't make a difference to him. And so that's what we ended up doing. But the people, my companions in the family, and especially um, Jamila, they really didn't want to go over there if I wasn't with them. Like they felt really insecure about this arrangement. And so while they were glad that they didn't have to walk into town to get the water, the whole thing was just very weird to them. In India's caste system, the Vanguja are on the very bottom. They don't live in towns or go to school. People look down on them. They were pretty convinced that had I not been with them, that the hotel owner wouldn't have allowed them to use the hose. So it was really kind of a window into the social rules and uh, taboos of Indian culture in this area. Which gets into why the Van Gujar wanted a journalist along this year. Every summer, generation after generation, each family goes to the same meadow in the mountains. And the family that I was with 
their summer meadow had been absorbed into a national park. And so the government had essentially told them before the migration began, we're not going to let you go into your meadows up there anymore. You know, it's part of a national park, and this has really been set aside to preserve and protect fragile wildlife habitat. It's not meant for nomads and water buffaloes. So we're going to ban you from entering. And if you try to go up there, we are going to seize your buffalo herds and we're going to throw you in jail. So don't even think about it. And this was absolutely unnerving to the family that I was with. They're not just going up into the mountains for like a summer holiday. They have to get their buffaloes up to these meadows so they can have enough food and water to survive throughout the summer. We began migrating towards the meadows. They were just hoping that while they were on their way into the mountains, that the government, specifically the forest department, would change its mind and say, okay, we're gonna let you into your meadows after all. 10 days or so after we began migrating, there was something of a protest slash meeting at the office of the director of this national park. And so Bangujars came from all over to meet at this office and basically show their support and plead with the park director to please, please, please let them go into their meadows. Michael was asked to come along to this meeting with his family and take pictures. The parks director absolutely refused to budge on his position. He was adamant that there's no way that the Vangujars were going to be allowed into their meadows that were inside the national parks. Then he requested to meet with me. I was a little bit nervous about meeting with him just because you just never know what's going to happen with authorities in foreign countries. And while I had hoped to talk to him at some point, I wanted to do it after the migration was over. But that obviously wasn't what was going to happen. So I thought, okay, well, I wanted to meet him anyways. And, you know, I really kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt of thinking maybe there's just a difference of opinion about what this national park needs. National parks around the world, they operate on a policy uh, that's called no people in parks. It's also known as the Yellowstone model, which is named after the first place that this was put into practice. Basically what it says is that if there's anybody living in an area that becomes a national park, they have to be evicted in order to protect the natural environment there. The idea behind all of this is that people fundamentally do not belong in the natural world. That human beings are an invasive species in the wilderness. And so if your goal is to protect fragile wildlife habitat, one of the things that you want to do is get rid of the invasive species 
even if that includes indigenous people who have been there for, you know, maybe thousands of years. Indigenous people, they take a different view of this issue. I mean, they say that they have been living in these places as a part of these ecosystems for so long that if you remove them from the system, you're going to throw it out of balance actually much more quickly than if you just left them where they've always been doing what they've always been doing. And they point to the fact that it's their homes that are being considered special enough to be called national parks. And so they must be doing something right, right? Michael went to go meet the national park director. He found himself without his Van Gujar family alone in an office with the director and six or seven of the director's associates. And he became very aggressive really very quickly, wanting to know what I was doing there, why I thought I had any right to be there. He wanted to know if I was a journalist. I had to say no because I wasn't there on a journalist visa. So then because I wasn't a journalist, essentially he accused me of being a foreign political agitator. And I got up to try to leave the situation and just say goodbye. And I was physically restrained by several of the other people who happened to be in there, like the forest workers, the forest officials. The police were called and I was escorted outside, literally at gunpoint, was forced to get into the back of this police vehicle and to be taken down to the station. I had no idea what was going to happen to me. On the one hand, I was concerned simply about going to an Indian prison. On the other hand, I was really concerned about that somebody was going to think to say, give us the memory cards from your camera or something like that. And that all the work that I would have done up until that point would have been lost. And that my whole point of being there and actually continuing on the migration with this family would have been destroyed. The whole thing was incredibly nerve-wracking. And then I got down to the police station. The police captain, he was fluent in English also. He asked me what was going on and what happened. And I explained the situation to him and he just kind of like shook his head and was like, okay, you get out of here. Like, there's no, we're not going to hold you for this. So it turned out I didn't actually have to spend any time in jail. And sort of funnily enough, one of the local newspapers ran a story the next day. And the headline was, we're sorry, Michael, kind of explaining what had happened and how I had been so grossly mistreated by the <laughs> parks director, you know, and this horrible insult to like a foreign visitor. So in the end, um, you know, in that way it worked out okay. The Van Gujar continued their migration. They knew they had to get somewhere where they could graze their buffaloes. The father and of the family I was with, Duman and his brother Yusuf, they had sort of worked out this plan B, where if it turned out that they really were going to get shut out of their meadow, they thought they had identified a different meadow that they could go to instead. And legally, they weren't actually allowed to go to that other meadow either. But because it was outside of the national park boundary, they assumed that they could just bribe the forest rangers who were there 
and work out some kind of a deal and that everything would be okay. And at least they would have somewhere to be for that summer. They really didn't want to do that, partly because this other meadow was much further away and higher in altitude and really in a more remote location. So it was a much less desirable place to be. They felt like if they abandoned their own meadow, who knows if they would ever be allowed to go back there again. This plan B was something they really did not want to have to do. But they knew that as we were continuing along the migration route, that we were going to come to a fork in the road. And by that time, they had to know were they going to aim for their meadow or were they going to go to this other alternative place. Every day as we were marching along, you could feel the tension in the family like palpably building as we approached this point of decision. Just before we reached the fork in the road, the family had a conference. You know, still the forest department remained adamant that there's no way uh, that they were going to be allowed into the meadow. And the family, even though they thought that maybe if they went to their own meadow, it would apply pressure on the authorities and maybe they would change their mind and allow them in. They felt like they couldn't take that risk. They had all of their buffaloes. It was at this point, there were several families traveling together. It was over a hundred water buffaloes. I don't know, 30 some odd people, including very, very like infants, very small children. And they felt they couldn't take that risk. So when we reached the fork in the road, they decided they had to try to go to this other place instead. And so at the fork, they turned toward the faraway foreign meadow. As we were getting higher and higher into the mountains, we had left any roads and villages far behind. We were camped in a place that was sort of just at the edge of the tree line. And beyond that, the rest of the way uh, up to this meadow was kind of heading up to this pass that was very steep terrain, totally exposed, uh, you know, no trees or anything like that. We were kind of stuck where we were at this camp along the tree line because this series of storms just kind of day after day kept rolling in over us, really kind of sat on top of us for a while. Because of the kind of exposure that we were looking at, to try to climb up over this pass, it would have been somewhere on the spectrum between, say, stupid and deadly. And one day there was just a storm that really was bigger than any of the others that had hit us. Thunder, it felt like the mountains were shaking. Rain and hail were just, we were being pummeled from the sky. And all of a sudden we hear one of the daughters in the family, a 12 year old girl named Bashi, just start screaming and screaming. Something horrible had clearly happened. And her job had been to watch the young buffaloes, the calves and the yearlings, because of the storm it hit. She had kind of taken them over to the side of this little canyon that we were in 
there was a little alcove that some of them were able to get out of the weather underneath, and the others just kind of huddled up against this cliff. And while they were there, just the rain and the hail were coming down from the sky. Up above them, maybe 70 feet above them at the top of this cliff, there was some flash flood that got triggered, and there happened to be a tree in the way of the flash flood. And so the water that was pouring over the cliff lifted up this tree, flung it over the edge, and the tree ended up hitting several of the buffaloes that Bashi was watching. So she freaked out. It's not just that these are their livestock. She felt like these buffaloes basically were like her sisters in some way. Um, they have these really, really close relationships to these animals. And so she saw what was going on and she just started screaming in terror and then running back to try to get some help. When we got up there, we saw that several of the buffaloes had been hit. A couple of them were obviously okay, like just their black hides had kind of been scraped by the branches of the tree that had been flung over the cliff, uh, but they were fine. Two of them looked like it was hard to tell if they were injured or not. Maybe they had some kind of internal injuries, uh, but the last buffalo was in really bad shape. The tree had actually smashed its front leg. It had this open compound fracture. The bone was sticking out. The hoof beneath it was just kind of flopping around like it was held on by a rubber band. This animal was in really bad shape. There was this kind of question looming um, in the air of, what do we do? From where we were to the meadow we were going to was only maybe six more miles, but we had to go up and over this really steep 3,000 foot high mountain pass. And I mean, this buffalo could barely stand up. It couldn't walk, you know, and there was no way that it was gonna be climbing over the pass that we had to traverse. they decided that they were gonna try to save the leg and save the animal. A group of us went up there to where the buffalo was and several people held it down physically. They poured some uh, turmeric powder, you know, like the spice into this open wound because turmeric apparently has antibacterial properties. You know, with some people holding this buffalo down by force, others pulled traction on the leg got the bone back into place. They had made this splint out of like wood and rope and had wrapped some cloth around and over the leg. Uh, and essentially they made this incredible splint form this sort of feat of wilderness veterinary medicine that I couldn't believe that they were doing. But so still, now you have this buffalo, it has you know stabilized broken leg, but at this point it really can't do much more than just stand up. You know, it still can barely walk. And I didn't see how this was gonna help the buffalo get up to the meadow where we were going, get over this pass. 
they ended up carrying the buffalo up and over this 3,000 foot uh, Himalayan pass in order to get it to the meadow where they were going to spend the rest of the summer. I have never seen anything like this. They had two, you know, like thin, sort of like pine poles, and they ended up lashing the buffalo between these poles, and then we carried it up and over the pass, you know, almost like a queen on like a litter or something like that. The trail up over this pass was so incredibly steep and switchback, you know, we would walk for a little while and stop and put the buffalo down, and then we'd walk more, stop, put the buffalo down. It took a while to get her up and over the pass, but eventually uh, it happened. And their goal, their idea was that because this buffalo was only a year old, that there was a chance that over the course of the summer, if it stayed splinted, the bone could heal, and then the buffalo would be able to walk back down with them out of the mountains in the fall when they migrate back to their fall and winter territory. Finally, Michael and his Van Gujar family reached the meadow. It was very mixed feelings, I think, for everybody, for different reasons. I mean, for me, it was really mixed because on the one hand, I had kind of achieved this goal of actually completing the migration with this family. And the view from the meadow itself was jaw-droppingly beautiful. You had this panorama spread out in front with this deep river canyon on the other side of it, these snow-covered 20, 21,000-foot peaks. Just so, so beautiful. But at the same time, for me, it meant that my time with this family was coming to an end and I had become really so close to them there was a part of me that didn't want to leave them. On their side, you know, on the one hand, because this had been an extra long migration and they had faced kind of challenge after challenge along the way, whether it happened to be dealing with the government or dealing with various illnesses that arose along the way, or finally, at the end, carrying this broken-legged water buffalo over a pass, they were very relieved just to get where they were going and be done with it. But they were also really disconcerted at the fact that they were at this place at all. Uh, and they were really concerned about what this meant for their future, that they weren't at their own meadow. It certainly did not seem like a good indicator of anything that was going to come for their people. And they also just really missed their own meadow. I mean, because this is their other meadow, their real meadow is the place where they've gone for years and years and generations. It has a deep sense of home to them. And so while they were glad the migration was over, they weren't at home. Our storyteller was Michael Beninov. He tells the story of that 2009 trip in his book, Himalaya Bound. 
In the years since then, his Von Gujar family has fought for the rights to return to their home meadow with varying success. Some years they've returned there, other years they've been barred. Michael says it depends on the whims of who's in charge of the national park. He says it's created a sense of insecurity and fear among the Van Gujar. For up-to-date information on the Van Gujar's plight, check out the Society for Promotion of Himalayan Indigenous Activities at sophia.org.in. You can see pictures of Michael's journey with the Van Gujars when you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Human Nature Podcast. On Twitter, we're Human Nature Pod, and I'm at Aaron JNS. And hey, if you liked this episode, tell someone about it. Word of mouth is our best advertisement. I'm Aaron Jones. This episode was produced by me with live production from Megan Fury. Editing help came from Anna Rader, Alex Schaefer, and Micah Schweitzer. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.